All right, we are uh, still in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Actually, we are, this is one of those parts of lectionary where we literally pick up in the verse we left off uh, last week. And so uh, if you'll remember last week, if you weren't here, uh, you may remember. If not, uh, you can uh, catch it uh, through Facebook or podcast or video or whatever. Um, and you'll remember that Jesus is kind of in the midst of this very direct conflict with the religious leaders of the time, right? Jesus has come into Jerusalem he is very, very much making a path towards the cross now, uh, and he uh, came in on the triumphal entry, which we will talk about in the lectionary not too long from now, I guess, but came in uh, on, on the donkey kind of being treated as some kind of strange little weird backwards upside down king. Then he goes into the temple and overturns tables and chases out the money changers and makes his prophetic uh, statement about what kind of uh, the religious practices of the time were. And then he gets uh, confronted by the religious leaders who, want, last week, remember, want to know where does, he get, where does he think he gets the authority to do these things. And so you'll remember last week, Jesus refuses to answer that question. In fact, he answers their question with a question that, they, that he knows that they can't answer, right? And when they won't answer that question, he says, well, I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority from. And then he says, but let me tell you a parable. And then he tells them this really direct parable about, uh, you know, which, which son does the father's will? The one that says, I will go into the field and then doesn't, or the one that says, I will not but then changed his mind and does it. And he kind of uses this uh, obvious answer to this little parable uh, to uh, confront them about uh, the way they are acting as leaders uh, in this community. And so uh, he's upset those who benefit from the religious world uh, as it is, right? Now, I always feel like I, got, I, I say this every probably two or three weeks as we get into these stories. Uh, and that is, we have to remember, again, because this is something that seems to be coming up uh, and rising up again in new ways in our culture. Jesus is not anti-Jewish, okay? Um, you know, anti-Semitism seems to be making a comeback right now, which is awful. Um, and a lot of times there's a lot of verses and Jesus gets blamed a lot for that and has historically. And the thing we got to remember here is, no, Jesus, Jesus has a very specific problem with a specific group of leaders uh, in, this, uh, in this place at this time. Uh, Jesus is, remember, Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. They, can, they are meeting in the temple. They are celebrating Jewish holidays. They are still practicing the Jewish religion at this point. Yes, Gentiles will come in later on and become included in it, and the way the church looks and the manifestations it takes based on the cultures it's in will look very different at different points, but this is not an anti-Jewish screed that he is going on here. And, and these parables that we're talking about have been used to promote that idea at different points. So I always feel like I need to say that again to make sure that's not what we're talking about, right? But in the, in, the next, in, the, in the couple of chapters that have been going on here, Jesus will distill down um, what it is that he's so upset about. In fact, two chapters from this, in, in chapter 23, uh, he specifically calls out the leaders and exactly what he does not like about the way they're doing things, right? Um, this isn't our text for tonight, uh, but let's go ahead and look at it real quick just because I think it, it's good to kind of have that to shine light on what we're talking about. Um, he doesn't question their religious belief or their Judaisms or their affiliations as problematic. In fact, quite the opposite. He says this in uh, Matthew 23, 1 through 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do what they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have a place of honor at the banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. And it continues on and on from there, right? They believe the right things. In fact, he says, you should do the things they teach, just don't act like them. Instead of their religious practice being a light and a comfort to those who need it, it is a burden to them, right? Again, Jesus is not against Judaism. He's against these particular leaders and the way they, their religious practice and the way they lead others in religious practice affects their neighbor. So last week, he wouldn't answer about his authority. Last week, he tells this short little parable about these two sons, and then he launches directly into this next parable that's our text tonight, um, which is uh, equally as offensive to those that he is, uh, well, trying to offend, I think. So uh, it's, it's effective. Uh, So let's look at it. Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32 says this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. You may be thinking, what's the difference between killing and stoning. I'm not sure. Usually both result in death. Um, it's not good either way. However, however that worked, it, it was not good. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Then he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the, owner in the vineyard, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to, the other, to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest, harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away, taken away from you And given to a people that produce its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. All right, so the setting of this story with the landowner that uh, invests in land, purchases it, builds it up, and then walks away and allows other tenants to, to farm it for a for part of the proceeds of that farming is going to be very familiar to everyone that's listening to the story. This is a very common kind of situation culturally. But the characters in the story are borderline absurd, right? They're, they're caricatures of something. These people do not look like the kind of people you would normally see in these situations. Well, think about the, the two main kind of players in the situation. First, the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner in this situation is uh, almost ideal in a lot of ways if you think about it, but he, he's not typical. First of all, this vineyard owner is very invested, right? He has purchased this property. He has dug the wine press. He has put up the watchtower. He has set it all up. He's taken care of everything. He's expended his resources. He's ensured that this entire setting, this vineyard, is set up to do what it's intended to do, right? This is not someone who's going in cheap and hoping to make a buck. This is someone who's really invested 
so that this thing can do what it's supposed to do, produce this fruit. So he is invested, this landowner. Not only is he invested, he is trusting, right? He leaves this big investment with those who agree to take care of it, those who agree to do what it, to work it and to produce the fruit it's supposed to produce. He trusts this investment with them. He's not micromanaging. He's not manipulating it. He's off from a distance trusting that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. He gives these workers the freedom to succeed or fail at the work that they have arranged with each other for them to do. And he has set them up to succeed in doing. So he's invested. He's trusting. And I think this might be the understatement of the decade. This landowner is definitely optimistic, um, hopeful, trusting to an alarming degree, right? Arguably, absurdly trusting. I don't know about you, but what if I sent my first set of workers and they were beat up and stoned and killed and I sent the second larger group and they were beat up and stoned and killed, after the second murder, I might rethink my strategy. I might default, I hate it, but I might default to at least a little bit of pessimism because of all the murdering that's been going on, right? But instead, this landowner after two rounds of literal murder, sends his own son, believing the best of those who don't deserve the benefit of the doubt or any grace whatsoever that they have to respect my son. Sends his son. They don't deserve the grace, but he sends his son. And then we know what happens, right? And the other major players in this story are the tenants, those who kind of are in this area that are supposed to be doing this thing, that have agreed to take care of this land and produce this fruit. And, un, and just like the parable from last week, there's really not much room for interpretation here. The problem is squarely on those entrusted with this landowner's investment. This story is an indictment on them. They are given all they need to produce this fruit. They're given opportunity they wouldn't otherwise have. They've been given a purpose. They've been given a means of providing for themselves and their families and producing what the owner wants. And yet despite this, they have somehow convinced themselves of a whole different kind of story. They convince themselves of the wrong narrative. They start telling themselves at some point that they're being ripped off. They don't see this as an opportunity to benefit from the vineyard that they've invested nothing in except for their own time when it was given to them. And in their mind, there's an injustice being done to them. They're given work on a field they didn't prepare, they didn't buy, they just have this opportunity, yet they are the ones who are the victims. This is an injustice, and there's only one real way to fix injustice, and all of us know that. There's only one way to really get what you need in this world. And that is to resort to what us people always seem to resort to. And we see it every day, over and over again, in the news and everywhere else. In one form or another, we know violence. Violence is how we set things right. And so they choose violence. And when the people come to collect, they exercise power over those who are most vulnerable right in front of them. They overpower the servants. They abuse the others in front of them. They ultimately kill the messengers. Now, none of their victims have any real power in the situation. None of them are responsible for what's going on. 
If the owner were evil, and I don't think the owner is evil in this story, but if the owner were evil, it's not their fault. They just happen to be the person in front of them that they have power over, and so they commit violence. None of the ones they kill could make decisions or change anything. They're just scapegoats for the tenant's anger. The tenants are so convinced of what's been dubbed, and I do like this term a lot because I think it sums up a lot. The tenants are so convinced by the myth of redemptive violence that they believe they have changed something. And this is what's so convoluting about this way of thinking, right? Because their decisions make zero sense here. Except to them. To them, this always makes sense. They kill the messengers. Then the second round of people come, and they do the same to them. Then the sun shows up, and they actually think to themselves. They say, they've got a watchtower. They can see him coming. The dad built it. They say to themselves, you know what? Here comes the heir. Let's kill the son, and then we get the inheritance. In what world is that true? This is not a Highlander movie. You don't get to chop off their head and then take all of their power. I know that's an obscure reference, but it works here. In what world is that actually how things go? They think, we'll kill the son, we'll get his inheritance. They are behaving in ways that are entirely destructive and detached from the real world. They think they're accomplishing something, but they're in the wrong story. All because they believe the narrative that they are owed something more, that they should somehow be served and not serve, and that the way to make this happen is through violence to those around them. They choose violence. And you might be saying, sure, Mike. That's what she's saying. Sure, Mike. But doesn't the landowner get real violent too? Not really. And that's really one of the things that I find mo most interesting about this story. Notice that Christ asked the religious leaders that he's been approaching and talking to and giving these stories to and offending, he asked them, what will the landowner do when the landowner gets there? And they essentially parrot back the same worldview as the tenants in the story. They say, oh man, the owner's going to go medieval on them, right? The owner's going to get them. The owner's going to go redemptive violence too. The owner's going to dial up the violence to the next level. He's going to show them how it's done. He will, quote, put those wretches to a miserable death. And that's not Jesus' explanation of what's going to happen. That's the people who are listening to the story. He's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. And in answering that way, I think they unintentionally judge themselves, right? They show their own bent way of looking at the world. It reminds me a bit of Nathan telling King David about someone, that someone out there that's done something so awful and King David is so upset about it and something should be done about it because he doesn't know the stories about him. Right? Ultimately, Christ never endorses violence in the story. In fact, when he does say what will happen later on, he says, the land will be taken from these people and given to these people. No wretches being put to death. No myth of redemptive violence there. Jesus demonstrates that he and the religious leaders that he's talking to are living in different worlds. They are living different stories. They're working in different vineyards altogether. They are in a world of grasping for what they can get for themselves whenever they can grasp it. They are in a world of dominance and ambition and exercising power over those they can. They are in it to win it for themselves. They will step on who they got to step on. They will load others down. They will do violence, even if it's not physical violence. It may be spiritual or emotional or whatever form it comes in, but they will do violence 
to whatever variety of their brothers and sisters they need to to get what they want and to maintain their position. Again, they load them down with burdens and have no interest in their own well in, in their actual well-being. They will not help. Because it's not about their neighbor at all. But Christ. Christ is building a different world, a better story. Christ wants their tables out of the temple. Christ is building a world where the vineyard gives us all we want, all we need to produce the kind of fruit that we really need in this world. Christ is trying to build a world where we have the opportunity to create love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all the fruits of God's Spirit. Places where we choose to serve rather than to be served. This is the world that Christ is building with his own life and his own teachings for us to live and work within. This is the story that Jesus is trying to tell. And it is a world, according to the story, that is built with Jesus as the cornerstone. The thing that holds it all together. In other words, it is all constructed in orientation to him. And this will either be good or bad news to us. Either it will clarify and simplify what we are doing here because it gives us that fixed point of reference, that cornerstone, or it will be forever in the way. The thing we trip over time and time again or maybe feel like it falls right on our head. So Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is painting a picture of a new world. And while the religious leaders are catching it on the chin, all is not lost for these religious leaders. In fact, I would argue they get one thing very right in these scriptures today. They recognize the parable is about them. And that's not nothing. To confess to you and be honest with you, I tend to assume I'm the good guy in all of Jesus' parables. So it's not nothing that they recognize that they're the bad guys here that they're actually receiving the judgment that Jesus is handing out. Unfortunately, they do the wrong thing with this realization. They dig in. This should be the part of the story where repentance takes place, right? This is when David realizes who Nathan is actually talking about, and he mourns, and he repents. He owns it, and he changes as one should when the lights get turned on in their lives. But not them. They are committed to their story. They're committed to the violent story they live within. They have just confessed that the tenants in the field deserve a miserable death. They just realize that Jesus thinks they are the tenants, and yet they double down on trying to kill the son. They trip on the cornerstone instead of orienting their story to it. And we are left with a lesson here to be learned. What story will we live by? Will we live by the same old narratives and myths that this world passes around time and time again, no matter how dramatically unsuccessful and stupid they might be? Or will we expend ourselves in the new world Christ is building around us and within us? Will we orient ourselves to the incarnate God and his kingdom's fruit? Or will we believe the violent lie that we exist to be served? Do we fall on the cornerstone? Or does that rock fall on us? Let's pray.
our gracious God, we are, uh, we are grateful that you are the kind of vineyard owner that you are. We are grateful for every gift that you have invested in our world and in us. We are grateful that we have everything we need to begin to live into your kingdom right here and right now. That God, you provide what we need to produce your kind of fruit. And we confess that the problem is with us. So God, our prayer is that we might uh, learn to tell a better story. That we may say no to all the voices in our world and even in our own heads that tell us that we deserve to be served, that this is really all about us. That winning this competition that we have set up on this world is what is most important. God, may we see the beauty of your story. May we become agents of your love. May we become distributors of your fruit. May we help to build the kind of world you want us to live. God, we do love you and we ask all these things. In your name, amen.